Hey guys, welcome back to Silicon Street, a podcast where we explore the intersection of finance, technology, and entrepreneurship by providing college students and young professionals with insight to these ever-evolving fields and uncover the secrets to success from distinguished industry leaders. My name is Michael Culler, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, James Barham. If you're new to the podcast, be sure to follow us on Spotify and LinkedIn, and definitely check out our existing platform with over 70 podcasts. Today, we have a bit of a unique podcast structure as we're tuning in live from recording of a podcast that was done in front of the Notre Dame Venture Capital Club. While James and I ask questions for the first 30 minutes of the podcast, as we always do, we then turn it over to the broader Notre Dame Venture Capital Club to ask our guests any questions that they might have. The members of the club are either students that have worked in VC, tech, and startup roles already, or students that are actively pursuing careers in these fields. So you will find that their questions are very insightful and can give you a taste of what other college students who are looking to break into these respective fields are wondering about. So with that, here we are live from South Bend, Indiana. Thank you guys also for coming out today. I know it's a brutal week with midterms. It's been a brutal week for me so far, but uh, I I know this will be a productive hour of your time. Uh, Mary's got a, a really cool background and some really cool things to share about not only kind of consumer tech, but um, a bunch of other things, uh, early stage investing related. So it should be should be a good hour. But, um, you know, without further ado, I'll give, give a quick intro to Mary. Um, she's she's a Notre Dame alum uh, and currently the head of business development of growth equity investing at Norwest Venture Partners. Uh, prior to her time at Norwest, she was a director at SoftBank, where she focused on investments in high growth tech companies. Uh, And then before that, she worked in a number of administrative investing roles at firms that include TSG Consumer Partners, Sequoia Capital, um, Oak Oak Tree Capital Management, and TA Associates. Uh, So obviously, kind of through these experiences, she's very well-versed in the the realm of consumer tech, and I'm sure she can speak on, you know, various topics from sourcing to conducting due diligence to fundraising. So guys, please, um, as as kind of we're going to ask some preliminary questions just to kind of introduce you guys to Mary and, and the work she does, but please be thinking of questions and anything that pops to mind, because there'll be plenty of time towards the end for you guys to to ask whatever questions you have or, or, or want to hear um, about. But um, I guess without without further ado, Mary, thank you again for for taking time and coming out. We're really excited um, to have you tonight. Oh, my pleasure. And just so happy to be here. Tony has been um, telling me about the club and all the growth that's happened over the last couple of years. Um, you guys may know that um, I got to see Tony's work firsthand. So he served um, as an intern at the Vision Fund for this past summer and then the summer before. Um, and I've just had such a great experience, obviously, working with him. So I know you guys are under great leadership with Tony. Um, and then just, I'd say the last week, had such a positive experience with a lot of Notre Dame students. Um, last, I think it was Wednesday, Patty Brady invited me to attend a dinner um, with a number of your members and AIM students who are out in San Francisco meeting with um, firms. And we had a really nice dinner um, last Wednesday in San Francisco. And I was just blown away by um, the internships that, you know, your cohort does, the job offers that people are getting. And it's just, um, as I said, you know, it blew me away because, you know, when I was at Notre Dame, graduated in 96, very few 
um, kids, had a path to to Wall Street, and just the experiences that you guys are racking up as undergrads, and then you know what that leads to. I'm just I'm so proud of all the work that you're doing, and I think um, you know it really starts with with conversations like this um, on projects and ideas, and thinking about you know who you can reach out to within the Notre Dame network. Uh, I was really involved in the um, SIBC when I was there. I was on the board. Um, it was a young organization at the time. But um, I think those relationships really helped me think about um, about business in a way that, you know, doesn't happen in the classroom. So I just really applaud you guys for joining this group. And, you know, if you guys are in SIBC, too, uh, I had a great experience with that. But these types of professional network organizations um, will prove valuable um, for sure. Awesome. Yeah, certainly a great group and definitely under great, great leadership under Tony and, <laughs> and, and Alan. But uh, I guess just to start things off, um, I know we gave you a, a quick intro, but if you wouldn't mind just maybe digging a little deeper on, on your background and yeah. maybe how you ended up in, in the position you're in now. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So, 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 I'm okay. Um, so my first job in the industry was back in the year 2000. Um, I think wait, all of you born then? Not yet. You know, um, <laughs> you might have all been born by the time we started in the industry. Sorry. Nope. Um, anyways, and I was at TA Associates. Not sure if you guys are familiar with them, but it's a Boston-based um, uh, private equity firm, and they have a really strong um, sourcing culture. They actually hire about 25 um, associates every year to literally cold call um, and proactively reach out to founders. Um, and that is a three-year specific um, kind of apprenticeship program where you get to learn the private equity business. So I really learned a ton from TA. I covered consumer there. And um, uh, deals at TA are really sourced bottoms up. So there's an opportunity for associates to really be a huge part of the deal process um, by attending trade shows, tracking down founders, screening companies, and then you know taking it um, uh, through the deal process. So um, I'd say that kind of uh, very similar firm um, to TA would be Summit. Now there's a bunch of spinouts as well, but TA and Summit were kind of the first two firms that had that model. Um, uh, upon kind of graduating from that program, um, I was getting married uh, to a guy, this will really date, uh, he was working at Lehman Brothers at the time, which obviously <laughs> no longer, but, um, and um, I was getting married cross country and kind of um, needed to find um, a role pretty quickly. And so I actually um, stepped into Oak Tree Capital um, uh, LP fundraising. Group. And what was interesting about that is it was a different side of the business. And um, and I hopefully you'll hear as I kind of go through kind of my resume is that you know, there are a lot of different roles within private equity, within venture, within growth equity. And um, I really think taking the time, if you get the opportunity to learn different sides, can definitely be beneficial. And it really has um, been so for me. So at Oak Tree, I was responsible for uh, sourcing LPs. And one of my LPs was the Notre Dame Endowment. So Scott Malpass was one of the people that we talked to on a regular basis to get him to invest in Oak Tree funds. And so we would talk to him about our distressed debt fund, which was at Oak Tree, kind of the marquee product. Um, and, um, but we had, you know, other funds, we had, uh, you know, infrastructure funds, we had um, hedge funds. I mean, we were really kind of um, in market doing business development with all different types of university endowments. So that was kind of my area of specialization. Um, and so um, I was there for a number of years and then um, I actually took some time off. So I decided to kind of with my husband, we had three children and my husband's a partner at a private equity firm. So we took some time off. I kind of stepped back for a little bit. Um, and uh, once my kids uh, were in preschool, I decided to go back 
and I reached out to a woman at Sequoia Capital who I had known um, previously. And, um, you know, of course, you're a little nervous after you take time off. Um, and, and certainly at that time, there really wasn't this kind of work from home mentality that there is now. So um, I just bring this up because there's going to be probably points in your life where you may have an um, uh, a kind of a, a interruption in your career, whether it be for an illness, maybe it's, you know, your wife's moving um, or your, your partner's moving forward and you're going to, you know, look after the family. But there's there are times in your life. And I guess my point in kind of bringing this up is, is that you can still get to really great things. And so after kind of being on the bench with little kids for a while, my, you know, uh, job back in the industry was at Sequoia, which was um, obviously a great place to, to, to land. I did LP fundraising um, there. Um, and then kind of got moved back um, to the private equity side. So a friend of mine, um, and I kind of keep using this word friend because the a lot of the relationships that I built at TA kind of in that associate program, um, which was why it was so great because there were kind of 20 to 30 of us at any given time, that network continues to always um, kind of populate and um, stay connected. And so um, one of my TA colleagues actually pulled me over to TSG Consumer to build their business development Um function. And not sure if you're familiar with TSG, but um, it's a growth equity shop based in San Francisco. There are a couple of Notre Dame alums there. Um, in fact, uh, they were the original backers of Vitamin Water. Um, Revolve Clothing is um, a business, an e-commerce business that some of you may have ordered um, uh, clothing from. And um, I really loved it. Um, but I've been living in San Francisco. Um, we had moved back to San Francisco. I've been living in San Francisco for a while again. And I was like, I have never had like a true tech experience kind of, um, you know, at this stage in my career and SoftBank was building up its team. So SoftBank kind of in the early days, kind of 2019, the Vision Fund was established as the world's largest um, tech fund. So it was 100, our first fund was $100 billion. And like that number just was just such a huge number compared to um, other funds that had been formed around the same time, which maybe have been like max 10 billion. So like, it was just like this crazy um, kind of, I would say um, platform uh, building that was happening at SoftBank. I was given an offer to come over there um, to join the consumer tech team. And I was responsible for business development within the consumer tech team. And some of the companies that we work with inside our team would be Fanatics. I would love to actually tell you a little bit about the case study of um, Fanatics. Um, another one is Flipkart. Not sure if you've ever heard of that. It was an Indian uh, platform similar to Amazon um, of, of India. Um, and uh, Coupon, which is uh, kind of Amazon of, of South Korea. And the reason I um, kind of bring a lot of these consumer names up, global names, is I felt like SoftBank was actually like kind of the first truly global platform that I'd ever been on. Yes, you know, I worked at Sequoia and I worked at TA, like amazing platforms, but they would have like an office in London and call themselves kind of like, a, you know, a, a international firm. But to be kind of working for a Japanese firm like SoftBank, which had truly unparalleled access to anywhere in Asia and, and, and pretty much globally as well, that was a real eye opener in kind of how you can differentiate um, Another business that I got to work very closely with um, on our team was Bite Dance. So obviously, uh, you probably know them uh, from TikTok. Um, uh, uh, um, and we have a very large investment in that. So happy to share a little bit about that as well. Um, and I actually um, just recently left SoftBank. A colleague of mine from TA is pulling me over to Norwest. I'm going to lead their business development function. So again, like this sourcing role, even from TA, continues to... Um, run to thread that has run through my entire um, career and my first day is tomorrow um, at my new job. So um, all the SoftBank information is extremely uh, fresh in my mind. Happy to talk about that. Happy to talk about um, uh, NeuroWest, but I'll be a newbie um, 
Uh, so my knowledge is a little bit less, but that's that's the the short, maybe it's a long, long introduction. Well, that's awesome. Congratulations on uh, on starting. That's 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 really exciting. And um, I guess just to kind of talk about your most recent experience then at, at SoftBank, yeah. like you mentioned, hundred billion dollar fund. That's massive, uh, and yep. the opportunities that came with that are. are are definitely impressive. So love to hear some like the positive things that that happen at SoftBank, but also um, it's kind of hard to to forget about. I feel like all every news outlet was talking about SoftBank, SoftBank's vision fund in 2022 and tech yeah, stocks yeah. were getting killed. So we'd also love to kind of maybe hear the other side and some of the lessons you learned um, during that downturn uh, and working for such a, a huge and important fund during that time. Absolutely. And I'm happy to talk um, to some extent about we work too. That investment was not on a specific team, but that like was such a kind of dramatic um, story. We were on the front cover of the Wall Street Journal almost every day. But um, I'd say just kind of starting um, from like maybe the, the positives. Um, so again, my role oftentimes is kind of on that top of funnel. It is sourcing deals. It is calling on entrepreneurs. It is screening entrepreneurs. And the good part about working for SoftBank when you manage 100 billion is every single person calls you back everybody calls you back because Masa was paying incredible prices. And so even if it was a really hard to get founder that maybe like, say, for example, at one of my previous funds, you know, I'd be banging away at that for a while. I mean, you'd be amazed at just kind of the doors that quickly open. Um, you know, I would say, so that's, that's the good piece. Um, the, uh, you know, we had really talked about as a fund of kind of building this like global ecosystem um, of companies, which would kind of just feed off each other. So, you know, one company would sell software to each other. If you were like an HR tech company, you'd sell it to everybody else in the portfolio. Um, that was kind of the promise and why a lot of entrepreneurs um, uh, took capital from us. And I'd say in the end, and I think internally, um, people would um, say that as well, internally and externally, I think we didn't necessarily deliver on that promise because we grew so quickly. We have over 500 portfolio companies. And it's just not possible to really kind of wrangle everybody in and um, make sure that everybody knows each other. So that was probably one of the things that I would say just from like how we delivered the investment product that we had promised to entrepreneurs um, was probably frustrating for us and it was frustrating for, for the entrepreneurs. Um, I definitely think that, you know, being on the front page of the Wall Street Journal, um, you know, was, it had some good things and, and some bad things. So the interesting thing about the management of the Vision Fund is they are not afraid of bad press, they would definitely say that like all press is, is good press. And so even if it means that Adam Newman is doing something really crazy, um, you know, on like smoking pot on a plane, like they went to, uh, you know, to, during a board meeting, like, um, and we're investors in FTX too. I mean, we've got, we've got all the hits, like any, any name, chances are we're investors um, there, um, you know, uh, but I was kind of amazed that when working there, that that kind of the leadership of the fund did not uh, really um, seem ever embarrassed by those kind of stories. And I think part of it is, is that all the capital comes from SoftBank's balance sheet. So we did not have any outside investors. So all the money comes from Masa, um, who uh, runs SoftBank Group. And so that gave him kind of um, tremendous freedom to back his entrepreneurs, to stand by his entrepreneurs. And I mean, Masa, for example, and with, with Adam Newman, he loved him so much, believed in him, just did not ever want to give up. Like it, it probably was anything that, you know, Adam could really do do wrong, even though, you know, we work is obviously very much a, a tragic story and 
one that, you know, has not performed well as a public company. Um, but I would say that, you know, our founder, Masa, is just the eternal optimist. And he just gives everyone kind of second chances. And some entrepreneurs that worked great for because they try harder to do good things. And I think some entrepreneurs would maybe, you know, say that they were going to do one thing and and, and just, you know, we're, we're just not going to be up to the task. I'm actually not saying that they were doing anything nefarious. I'm just saying that, you know, maybe their dreams were bigger than what their team could actually deliver. So, um, so I'd say those are probably some of the, the positives and negatives, but feel free to yeah, drill back into any of that. No, that's, that's very interesting and kind of a fascinating story there working with some of those names and, and, and the fact that the balance sheet gave you that, that freedom. It seems like there's Definitely some pluses and minuses to that, um, but I guess I guess to jump into one of some of the some of the good side of this things, you said you got to work with with your team on some very cool projects. Len, you said Fanatics and Bite Dance and um, Flipkart. Yeah. So would you would you mind jumping into uh, into Fanatics for us? Just kind of yeah. the, the evolution yeah. there and and how you created value for that business. Yeah. So, you know, I think that one of the interesting things about Fanatics is there's some really just top tier investors alongside us. So you've got Silver Lake, you've got Insight. Um, you know, we have over five billion in, in that um, investment alone. Um, and um, I would say, so you know, kind of when you kind of come into the board meeting, obviously the CEO, you, you may guys have known, I mean, he's very, very public, Michael Rubin. Um you know, he is just kind of a fast talking, big idea guy. The investors around the table also have amazing platforms. So I think, you know, we would think as a team um, and my partner, Lydia Jett, who um, sat on the board, we would always prepare, about, OK, what can we do to stand out? Because this is a pretty competitive product. Not only is it a competitive industry, but it's a very competitive crowd. And everybody kind of at the board meeting is, is looking to um, to deliver value and to some uh, to some extent kind of one up each other. But when we invested in that business, it really was um, a Jersey business. It was a pure e-commerce business. And we, um, during our first meeting with Michael Rubin, when we met with him, we kind of, you know, could talk a little bit about where we wanted the brand to go. And he asked us, you know, where would you see the brand going? So part of our pitch was to kind of come back to him with a roadmap, a blueprint for how we envision the brand to grow over time. And so one of the fun, it was just such a great um, project because, you know, this is kind of where um, a company like Fanatics, they have so many choices of investors. And so he's only going to be picking people, um, obviously on valuation, but then people that he thinks are going to be, you know, um, delivering tremendous value. So we started obviously with the, um, you know, the Jersey business, and then we kind of created this roadmap where we felt, you know, kind of the collectibles business was going to be another big piece of that. That ultimately ended up manifesting itself in the um, acquisition of tops trading cards as an important asset that would help build the fan experience. Because really what we were trying to do, and I'll get to other examples, is really kind of make sure that Fanatics was part of every single purchase that happens in the fan economy that they could be. So really that 360 view of kind of that fan economy. And um, kind of another um, tier that we've been able to work on in the last couple of years is sports betting. Um, and um, you guys may have seen that Fanatics has um, announced um, kind of uh, its first steps in, into betting. In fact, um, in the Washington Commander's Stadium, we have a restaurant, a Fanatics restaurant, where you can bet. The only thing you can't do is you can't bet on the commanders because it's against the league rules to bet on the team that you're physically in kind of the four um 
walls of, but you could go and spend your day in a fanatics, you know, because sports bar, restaurant, um, bedding. And some people, and actually, when I was with the AIM students last week, they were saying, well, gosh, you know, why is fanatics betting going to be better than uh, FanDuel? Or why is it better than um, uh, prize picks? And I think the real key differentiator is, is that Fanatics has a database of over 20 million e-commerce customers. So we know that um, that Mike likes, you know, the Patriots and um, that Alan is a, a big fan um, of the Green Bay Packers. And so we can be pushing, obviously, sports content around betting and upcoming games based on all this data that we have from their um, team purchases from the Jersey side of the business. Um, we also um, have acquired some brands like Mitchell and Ness. Not sure if you've ever heard of any of those brands, but they're more lifestyle brands. Um, and we brought in um, uh, uh, other investors. So Jay-Z, for example, was an investor who came in on a specific um, kind of vintage apparel brand. We gave him equity in Fanatics, a very small piece of it, uh, of the business. But we knew that the tremendous value that he would bring in as a co-investor in the business and helped us win this acquisition for this area that we wanted to get into, which was um, uh, kind of the vintage apparel, which was really a hot trend. And so I guess these specific examples in terms of like M&A have been a really fun part of the business to work on. Michael Rubin is a total pro and, you know, he comes up with so many ideas. I don't want to say that all of these are, are soft bank ideas, but when you think about like how you as an associate or how you as a VP, if you're working on, if you're tagged to a portfolio company, um, you know, you will have meetings where you're talking with your managing director, the board member about the ways to, to build value. And, you know, um, a good, I think in any, um, you know, healthy, um, you know, firm, good ideas come from anywhere. And, and um, particularly, you know, in consumer tech, people your age are oftentimes closer to the consumer in a lot of categories. Um, and so um, I would say, you know, some of our, you know, youngest associates are had ideas that went, you know, straight to the board meeting, straight to Michael Rubin, and, and um, particularly in the sports betting area. And then I'll just add one more thing for that I'll toot soft things. Um, uh, horn a little bit is so sports betting is really obviously heavy, heavily, heavily re regulated. And, um, and so uh, uh, we created kind of state by state analysis for which state we should go into first, the, where fanatics should go into first. And I would say when I kind of look around the table, I don't feel like Insight or Silver Lake had kind of that government affairs capability. We had that capability, particularly because what the Trump administration was doing to bike dance, which was possibly shutting down TikTok. And they asked us to help out to think about, OK, if, if TikTok gets shut down, um, you know, what is going to happen? Uh, to bite dance. So we had built up as a firm this huge government affairs team in DC that walks the halls, meets with um, you know all both sides um, of, uh, of of Congress, and um, that same team of people was actually really helpful to Michael Rubin on the sports betting analysis on thinking, okay, why you should go into Texas before Florida, and you know which market would lead to another um, because that business is still very nascent, but it's going to be you know a huge business, um, and so. Uh, maybe I'll stop there, uh, but those are some specific examples. Definitely, no. That that's very fascinating, and sounds like some active investments um, coming from from SoftBank. I'm just kind of curious with a portfolio so large, how how active are you able to be when you have the 500 portfolio companies and and only so big of a of a bank at SoftBank? 
Yeah, that's a great question. So I would say that um, to for the investments like Fanatics or WeWork, which we had you know multi billion dollar stakes in those businesses, like those those kids, those nine hundred pound gorillas would get the most attention. And you, you build kind of business development resources, you build kind of post deal close. Another whole job in this industry, if any of you guys are ever interested, if you're not sure that you want to do the deal side, there also are these whole um, platform teams that help with business development or help with um, M&A strategies, all post-close, really on portfolio services side. And so I would say kind of um, our largest investment, so for us, it'd be things north of a billion dollars, um, equity check um, would be the ones that get the the most investments. And that kind of goes back to the thing that I was saying that I didn't think that we did a great job, because if you took a $50 million check from SoftBank, you as a founder probably would have been like, wait, like I, I thought I was, you know, Michael Rubin, I thought I was going to, you know, get, um, you know, attention um, and chances are there's just not enough bandwidth. We did, we did not staff up. Um, and so it was just kind of our, our 900 pound gorillas that would be getting the attention. Interesting. I guess um, I'll, I'll go ahead then maybe before we jump into further questions, would you be able to help us better understand consumer technology? Because that's been a big focus of of your career so far, and just maybe how how this this industry has evolved over the course of your career. Yeah, you know it's it's interesting. I I would definitely say that from like a returns perspective, consumer has been a difficult place to be if you compare it to say for example to like enterprise software. I mean the numbers and the returns are just not going to be um, as high. And so I would say there certainly are breakout ones. So one brand that's in the SoftBank portfolio is actually in my next firm as well as Viore. So that's a company, not sure if any of you guys wear their apparel, um, uh, that, um, you know, will be, you know, double digits, like high double digit return um, for both SoftBank and um and for Norwest, my next firm. But I would say that in general, um, you know, just the multiples are are lower. And that's because so many companies just have not traded well. Like if you think of like even the darlings of um, kind of consumer, um, like a Warby Parker, like just that company just has not, um, you know, pr- performed. So, you know, I oftentimes when I think about kind of consumer as like outcomes, I oftentimes think that it is such a win if you can maybe, um, you know, get acquired with an M&A from either another fund or maybe, you know, for example, um, you know, a, a, a CPG, um, some strategic M&A for that category might be a better path um, based on kind of what I've seen, um, you know, uh, looking back, um, particularly in, so um, at TSG Consumer, I worked on a lot of, of food brands. So vitamin water, obviously, would be a perfect example. Like, would that company, you know, do great trading, um, you know, alone? Probably not so much. Was the multiple that Coca-Cola paid um, incredible? Yes. And so I just think that it's, um, it's it, 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 there's some categories. And that's what's kind of fun about this. And I hope that all of you guys, um, no matter what kind of firms you go to next, like, to raise your hand and hopefully, um, you know, work on obviously sectors where you do have like a personal, um, you know, passion for I always have um, uh, for consumer, it's just made like everything that I've worked on more fun, because, um, you know, I just love spending time um, in, in the category. And when there is a winner, and I, even though I was saying, you know, returns historically are not as great as like SAS. Yes, that's true. But there are amazing winners to be had in, in the category, you just have to be really careful. Um, because there really are not that many barriers to entry in the way that um, there are in other categories. Um, so, yeah. 
Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's super helpful to kind of get a sense of um, consumer tech. So I, I guess now we'll kind of open it up to, to all you guys. So please fire away and, and ask any questions that, that came to mind um, for Mary. I have a wee question for you. I'm on that note of vitamin water. Um, I, when I look at a lot of companies that are like close to IPOing or like series E, that type of stuff, I kind of look at them and I'm like, if we look at traditional businesses like J&J and others, like it's got, they've got loads of products, um, not just one. Like, and if we look at Allbirds, like they just do sneakers <laughs> and they're, IPO is not gone all that well. So like, have you seen with the market changing that there's more of a push towards, okay, like we do sneakers, but also like we also do sweatshirts and things like that, like people adding to their product lines or have you seen with lack of capital people like actually constricting down? Yeah, I think probably the good example to maybe think about that question, great question, by the way, um, thank you, um, would be to really think about like what happened to Lululemon, for example, traditionally like a women's um, brand stock has done over time very well. And I think where a lot of the growth came for, from was as they continued to build up their men's line. Um, and that then became this whole new TAM for them. And actually Viore, um, again, I'm not sure if you guys are familiar with that brand, but um, they will likely go public within um, the next year. And they are actually the exact flip of their primarily a menswear business that's now building out um, its women's wear business um, and, uh, and and potentially kids as well. So I guess I would just say um, it doesn't have to be like jumping into footwear if you're into apparel. It doesn't have to be, you know, into totally, you know, um, new segments. It could just be um, kind of adding, you know, an, an additional um, sex. But um, but yeah, I I. I totally feel with your with your saying and, and and I would just say that you know you're ultimately not going to probably have um you know five public all birds companies it's it's going to be you know uh, um a, a limited universe unlike software which I feel like could just you know it'd be like the sky's the limit so um another kind of consumer tech example um would be i don't know if you guys um followed this category or not but about a year and a half ago um there was a lot of growth within digital health um so kind of during covid a lot of people were doing telehealth um, there was a lot of growth around telehealth and um a number of so say for example um you know people might want to do online therapy and maybe you know they'd want to get adhd medicine like through a telehealth platform like well that category really grew tremendously again kind of out um of covid but i think if you were to look at where that um kind of company formation has um kind of landed today is that there's been just a ton of weeding out of companies so a ton of funding went into the category there was um there was a lot of promise around it, but healthcare it's still healthcare and healthcare is very difficult um, to execute. And there were probably too many companies funded. And what we're now really seeing in digital health, which is, I believe, kind of the intersection of health and consumer, which is why I follow it around kind of the consumer health, is that we're seeing a massive um, shrinking and, and weeding out of companies in that space. I have a quick one. Um, I guess, yeah, a lot of uh, what we focus on is kind of early stage, but what we probably hear less of is like the, later stages and up to IPO. 
Um, but I know like Arm just went public and SoftBank was obviously a heavy investor in that. So I'd love to hear a bit like about your experience with the IPO process. Maybe you, you could use Arm as an example if you like, but I'd love to just hear what the kind of process is involved in that. Yeah, yeah. Um, absolutely. And that's one of the things um, that we would oftentimes sell uh, to founders when we were um, pitching them as saying that there would kind of this be this um, this IPO readiness platform, part of SoftBank. And, and most of the large um, VCs kind of series the year later um, have it. But one of the main things that you'll do kind of as an investor in a later stage um, growth fund is you will um, make sure that your founders are meeting with and getting in front of kind of who is going to like fill the book. So meeting with the people from Fidelity, meeting with the people from Capital Group, meeting with kind of all the strategic players um, well ahead of the IPO process. And so you're kind of... Um, in addition to an investment bank who will be an advisor on the business, but you as kind of a late stage growth investor would have kind of unique relationships. And so we oftentimes would do pre-meetings um, with Capital Group, for example, with the ARM um, leadership team to make sure that they knew what type of questions they would be get, getting from the street kind of pre-IPO um, and then also making sure that we were doing the right type of marketing. So Capital Group would want to, you know, be, um, you know, with us kind of um, as, as we launched. Um, so there's that um, piece of it. A lot of, um, I'd say, senior leadership changes kind of need to happen, changes need to happen. Um, I would say in that Series D round where maybe you've really had an amazing CFO who's grown you from Series, you know, A to C, but, you know, running a $50 million company is way different than a $400 million revenue company. And so oftentimes thinking through, like, is this going to be the the right team? Um, and then um, and then the SoftBank story was just a particularly uh, interesting one around ARM. So um, SoftBank Group, so the parent in um, Japan, um, they ultimately purchased the whole stake of the ARM investment from the Vision Fund about two weeks before the IPO. So the Vision Fund's returns was locked because SoftBank Group um, came in and acquired um, it, which was part of the terms um, early on that they would be able to buy any visits. So it's just a really unique fund structure where kind of Masa can pretty much, um, uh, you know, I'd say make a lot of negotiations um, uh, on specific investments. Um, and so, um, you know, that I think, uh, has been an investment that, you know, people were very, you know, nervous about. I think they're, you know, happy that it, that it got out when it did. Um, but, you know, if you were to wind the clock to back two years ago, NVIDIA and ARM were supposed to actually um, merge. So, and, and that deal fell apart um, two years ago. So, um, you know, had that deal happened, um, topic would have had a huge stake in, in, in NVIDIA and, uh, the deal fell apart. So there's, there's definitely like, you know, um, uh, people who, you know, feel that there was some messed up opportunity, um, with that one, but that, that's unique to the arm situation. But I would say that the key thing for working for, um, a later stage growth fund is that there's going to be a whole IPO readiness team. And that doesn't actually have to be the investor, the investment, the deal team. You're going to, this is kind of like falls underneath the kind of the platform umbrella at a number of firms where you'll be able to um, 
uh, you know, talk to your, sometimes they call it like capital markets team or they'll call it portfolio services team, but there's a whole team of people. And the reason I, again, kind of like bringing that up is I'd say when I started in the industry back in 2000, you would just have the deal team and then you'd have like the CFO at the fund. Like there wasn't like this whole ecosystem of people with all kinds of jobs. And and especially in college, I thought like, oh, okay, you can only, if you want to work for a private equity firm or a venture firm or a VC firm, you're only going to be like a deal team member. And my point in actually always letting younger people or college students know is that the industry has continued to grow tremendously over the last 20 years. And if you think you're really interested in the industry, but you're not totally committed to just being you know, on the deal team, there are many other roles that you can also have. It is a large industry. They pay those roles, pay well, you're part of the deal process, you're part of the ecosystem. Um, and I would just encourage you to, I mean, feel free to obviously reach out to me if you want to learn about other kind of like non-deal um, uh, roles. But um, I just, uh, I, I think it's, it, it, and they can hire directly from college as well. So it's, it's just good to know that, you know, there's many hats to wear. I have another question, uh, if no one else wants to ask a question. What do you think um, is the optimum way to structure a VC fund in terms of like how management gets paid and things like that? Because I know SoftBank is very, very unique in that it doesn't have any LPs, but I feel like there's been a growing trend towards even bigger funds because then you get even more management fees. So have you seen anything like cool and innovative in how people are doing that now that capital is a little tighter? Yeah. Um, You know, I think the the healthiest funds that I've worked at is where, you know, everybody, you know, gets economics. And I would say, you know, at SoftBank, they're, they had their own kind of carry structure. We didn't have carry and that created um, a lot of stress for people um, because they weren't exactly sure, you know, how they were um, controlling um, their deals and how that would um, pay out. So, um, you know, I would say, um, you know, TA associates would be an example of a place where I felt like the economics was shared broadly, even down to, you know, assistance where people um, can get a piece of the carry, they can get, um, they can also uh, uh, get bonuses for, you know, sourcing deals. So um, associates, and this is like so long ago now, but uh, associates at TA, you could get a hundred grand for every single deal that you sourced. And one of my colleagues, Vince, he sat in one year, he sourced five deals and he already had like an, an amazing salary. So I'm just saying like the incentives that firms can put out um, to, you know, kind of um, help you to like source a deal. Then there'd be um, other incentives like bonuses for, you know, if we closed a deal and then obviously another bonus, like if, if the company were to trade, go public and trade above a certain percentage, like I would just say that like, I've seen people respond really, really positively to those carrots um, out there. And, um, and they don't, they don't even have to be like the hugest numbers, but like where you kind of know what the milestones are and they just make people hustle. So I would say, um, uh, you know, that is, where I've seen, you know, work well. Um, And then, you know, I think, like, when you talked a little bit about like the larger funds, so like Oak Tree is a very large fund, obviously TPG is a really large fund in terms of like all this like capital that's just kind of like flocking. And to some extent, LPs find that to be very efficient because like an LP, like let's say you're Notre Dame endowment, like do you really have time to like go chase around like a middle market, you know, uh, private equity fund? Like maybe you'd rather be parking some capital 
in TPG that focuses on uh, middle market private companies. You know what I'm saying? Because you know kind of the platform. So I, I'd say over the last like 10 years, I've really seen this flight of LP dollars go towards platforms. Um, and sometimes they'll then, the LPs will get a little bit of a discount on the fees as well. I think we're going to see more of that um, just because I think it's there's too many funds um, out there and I think it's too hard for LPs to track them down. That said, there is, and I don't know if you guys talk about this at all, but there's this whole you know, new access for the private wealth channel to start investing in alternative assets, including venture. Um, and so we're going to start seeing in the like, next five years, people out of their 401ks investing in um, alternatives, in ventures and having allocation. So you know, maybe there's going to be you know, room for um, all these managers, but I, I, my gut says is there's probably too many managers that are um you know not of, of scale to really catch the attention of lps if no one has any other questions i'll, I'll ask another quick one um kind of regarding sourcing and, and due diligence but um kind of at your time at softbank and kind of all the other firms you've worked at do you mind just like running me through kind of some of the qualitative and quantitative aspects that you look at when kind of evaluating an early stage and even a later stage kind of investment opportunity yeah, I mean, there's nothing like revenue growth um, that I would say that is just, you know, definitely going to be the one thing that in any meeting catches people's attention. Certainly um, a, pot, a really healthy um, gross margin um, on the venture side, like those would be like the two things that would definitely be standouts. As you move into kind of growth equity, you need to have, you know, hopefully double digit EBITDA um, margins. But um, I would say kind of that top line growth is what gets everybody excited. Um, and when I say top line, like a soft thing, it was like 100% top line growth. Um, at, at other firms that I've worked with, you know, at TA, it'd be like 30%. So it's going to depend on which platform um, kind of uh, uh, you're on. But um, I would say, you know, early stage venture, um, you know, it's going to be about product market fit. And you're not going to have that that revenue. So it's a little bit more opaque, which, which makes it difficult. And some people love that, right? That that dreaming of, of what it, it, it can be. Um, I sometimes uh, I feel like a little, I think maybe I'm a little bit more tangible where seeing some revenue helps me just um, kind of get my arms around it. Mark, Mark had one in the chat, so I'll, I'll say that out for him. So he is wondering... Is so SoftBank invested in FTX? Kind of how have you guys, or how did you guys deal with that all that backlash? And and then another one. We'll jump into the next one after. It's a little bit of a different topic. Yeah, I mean, in the so um, I, I just go back to this a little bit. Is that in general, SoftBank is not afraid of bad press. Like they they like willing to, willing to um, roll with it. Um, but they did feel defrauded by FTX for sure. So I wanted to like draw the line there. They feel that there there was fraud there, um, and um, and you know right up until the very end, I mean, it was looking like at our database. Um, you know, like it was it was like hours before like it was shut down. Was Sam was still emailing you know people on that investment team. I didn't specifically work on that. That was our fintech team. But, um, you know, he was fighting hard up until the end. And then obviously, you know, as more has come out, they really feel that things have been um, defrauded. Do I, I don't have any idea what's going to happen in the, the trial. I listen to so many of these podcasts um, uh, all the time, like yesterday. I know his ex-girlfriend, Caroline, um, uh, inter was uh, on the stand. And I, 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 for whatever reason, this, this one, I'm particularly um, 
interested in and will follow. But um, but from staffing standpoint, it was definitely fraudulent. And and so because we didn't have any external LPs, we didn't have to do a ton um, of uh, explaining. But it just isn't a name that you feel good about, you know, um, having um, just on on your website. Um, and so. Yeah, obviously an unfortunate, unfortunate story there. Um, yeah. Okay, and then this next one, kind of jumping into artificial intelligence, the buzzword of the day. How is kind of AI and generative AI, how do you think that that is going to influence the consumer tech industry um, looking forward? And he says yeah. in particular patent law. Ooh, okay. Patent law, I might <laughs> have to defer to somebody else on this call because I, um, I, don't, I don't know what time it is. So anybody else wants to respond on that one. But um, definitely AI and Gen AI is all, you know, Bisoffing um, is thinking about, most investors are thinking about, I'd say that um, one really cool uh, thing that they kind of have access to is, um, is TikTok. So um, we kind of oftentimes would take a lot of our founders uh, behind the curtain at TikTok to see, you know, what um, content was resonating, what what could be um, suggested and really helped our founders build marketing plans um, based on that. So I think we're going to continue to see, um, uh, you know, TikTok be as a leader and think actually just invest more money in, in, in TikTok. Um, and really, you know, internally do not believe that that business is going to um, get shut down. Um, that's just the firm's belief. Um, and, uh, and, you know, that it will continue to power and, and be a huge leader um, in AI. And separately, there's been a lot of information um, in the press with soft bank um, rumored um, to be making a $10 billion investment in open AI. Um, Sam and Masa, the founder of um, OpenAI, um, sorry, Sam, the founder of OpenAI and Masa, the founder of SoftBank, have become quite close and um, talk almost every day. And Masa uses um, uh, ChatGPT every single day and just believes that every one of our portfolio companies should be doing it. So like a huge push from Masa in every communication. And I wouldn't be surprised. It's in the press that it'll be um, a $10 billion investment. And I wouldn't be surprised if we see that any day just based on um, what I'm kind of hearing internally. But Masa's actually dealing directly with Sam. So he doesn't even, even he would ask the Vision Fund team to help with that. He's just... Uh, running point with Sam um, on that one. That's interesting. And then we've got uh, one more one more question in the chat. What are your thoughts on search funds? Yeah, I love this question. I think there is um, just this whole new area of kind of uh, fund formation around this. I actually just attended a conference at Stanford where there were over 400 attendees of people who run search funds. Um, and it was kind of like the Super Bowl of search fund um, uh, conferences at Stanford with a professor who's kind of a pioneer in the space. But I think it's, I think, you know, five years ago, people would have said, oh gosh, those people couldn't raise their own fund. Now I think it's like a legitimate asset class that people are excited about. And so um, I think if any of you guys get an opportunity to do an internship or some sort of mentorship with somebody in that space, I think it's actually a really interesting area and I think there'll be growth for it. So I definitely would view it as um, as something that, you know, you could learn a ton from and we're going to see it continue to build out. And by the way, if anybody is coming out to San Francisco too, um, just let me know. We'd love to host you for lunch. You're too kind. Um, I have one more question. Um, 
Do you think that the VC funds and especially late stage VC funds can survive a high interest rate environment? Good question. Um, I think there will be a lot of attrition, but it's complicated because, well, I'm actually going to answer it a little bit more from the portfolio company um, level. So, so many companies got funded in 2022 with way too much money, right? So like, if you funded, um, say like this, I don't know, HR tech business, and say we put $100 million into it, that company still has a ton of cash on its balance sheet, and they are not going through it. They cut their staff, they haven't really pivoted to a new business model, but the current model is not working. And so they can swirl the drain for a long, long time before anyone really knows, right, that they are in dire straits, because they could just run a leaner organization. So the way that then that translates to the funds is, is that they've got all of these kind of uh, portfolio companies, which they hope to get an exit in three to five years, are going to get way pushed out. And so um, I just think we're going to get everything kind of elongated. But then it's also complicated because not many companies in the last year were able to get public. So people could just like blame it on like, oh, Wall Street, you know, the markets were closed. Not, nobody got public. It was just ARM that got public or just a few others. But there's also a bunch of companies that have way too much cash that will never get public, but they're just kind of like in camouflage in this um, environment of um, swirling the drain. I, I don't know if that answers your question. It's, it's, it's not, it's not easy. I think it, I think it's actually kind of a scary part of, of the industry right now where people still are sitting on so much cash. Awesome. Well, I think we're right up at 8.55. So if anyone has any last minute questions, uh, now's your time. But if not, thank you so much, uh, Mary, for, for coming out and, and uh, taking time to, to chat today. Uh, and thank you, yeah. thank everyone for coming out too and um, asking questions. Me and me and James love doing the live podcast because you guys always are asking uh, asking great questions that uh, we we certainly don't think about. So uh, thank you guys and and thanks Tony for having us too. Yeah, I love your podcast name. You guys got one of the best ones out there. <laughs> thank you. Okay, see ya. Good night. Thanks for coming, Mary. All right, everyone, that about wraps up our conversation with Mary Miller of Norwest Venture Partners. We hope you enjoyed our conversation on the unique fund structure and opportunities of SoftBank's Vision Fund, some of the lessons learned from the downturn in the market in 2022 while at the Vision Fund, and an overview of consumer tech, as well as Mary's insights into the industry. If you're interested in learning more about venture capital, technology, or startups from top industry names like Mary Miller, please check out our platform of over 70 podcasts, professionals in these industries, on either siliconstreetmedia.com. Once again, that's siliconstreetmedia.com. And anywhere that you listen to podcasts, whether that be Spotify, Apple, Google, or elsewhere. Uh, these episodes are great resources for you to gain advice on how to break into certain industries that you might be interested in pursuing, or just to gain insight into how top industry practitioners have achieved success. As always, if you have any guests or topics that you'd like us to cover in the future, please feel free to reach out to us on our website. And with that, thank you guys so much for listening and we'll see you on the next episode.